Hello, and welcome to Season 2 of Historically Speaking Podcast, Uncommon History with an Unconventional Pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 22 years. Sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. Hello, and welcome to episode 38 of Historically Speaking Podcast. We are coming to you a week late, and yes. that is because <laughs> we both just had COVID. Yes, I, yes, it's unpleasant. It is not fun. No. I don't recommend it. No, I don't recommend it at all. And we're both vaxxed, and I'm boosted. Yes. And we still got it. We still got it. And yes. we had completely different symptoms. Yes, that was also very Very strange. puzzling. Yes. But yeah. hopefully now we have natural immunity for all time. Yes, for at least 50 years. Less hope. Yes. In any so, case. back to our regu regularly scheduled, <laughs> scheduled program. program. <laughs> this episode, 38, is on the Scopes Monkey Trial, which is yes. one of those things a lot of people have heard of, but they have no idea what it is, like me. Yes. Well, the Scopes Monkey Trial took place in 1925. Officially, it was the state of Tennessee versus John Thomas Scopes, but it's usually just called the Scopes Monkey Trial. It was given that term by H.L. Mencken, the curmudgeon journalist from Baltimore. Oh, uh, okay. Who actually attended the uh, the trial. I see. And it apparently was the first uh, national radio broadcast of a, a live event across the country. Really? Yeah. And uh, so it really the had... The trial? Yeah, well, at least some of it. Uh, That's amazing. Um, yeah. I had no idea. And uh, it uh, took place in Ray County, which is in southeastern Tennessee, in the county seat of Ray County, uh, Dayton. Okay. And it came about because of the Butler Act. Now, what is the Butler Act? The Butler Act was passed by the state legislature of Tennessee in early 1925, in March of 25. And the Butler Act stated that it was against Tennessee law to teach evolution. Oh, this sounds like some fundamentalists got together and say, hey, we can't. Well, let keep this in mind that Charles Darwin's Origin of Species came out in 1859 and it rocked the world. Because up until 1859, there were very few who accepted the uh, concept of evolution. But uh, Darwin had collected such massive amounts of evidence over the course of many years including on the Galapagos Islands, that when he published The Origin of Species in 1859, it was backed up by a great deal of evidence. Now, as you can imagine, as you move into the late 19th, early 20th century, there were a lot of individuals that refused to accept the idea that a man evolved from ape-like creatures, as opposed to the biblical account of God created everything. Right, including Adam and Eve and the world's only 6,000 years old and so on. Well, in Tennessee, uh, this came to a head with the Butler Act passed in early 25, which prohibited the teaching of evolution. Now, I'm just curious, did that happen in any other state? Yeah, there were uh, many states considering such a law. I think it was passed in two other states uh, about the same time. But the Scopes Monkey Trial put such a damper on this, for reasons we'll get into, 
that it was kind of sort of dropped afterwards. Yeah, it seems weird that you would pass a law. All right. Don't teach this. Well, one of the most bizarre things about the Scopes Monkey Trial is that the state of Tennessee also required a certain biology text known as Civic Biology, written by a man named George William Hunter, who had a doctorate from NYU. And in this biology textbook, which biology teachers in Tennessee were required to use, there was a chapter on evolution. <laughs> well, that's, so every win. teacher in Tennessee was faced with either violating the Butler Act if they taught evolution, or if they didn't use the textbook, they were in violation of a Tennessee mandate. Now, why didn't they bring this up when they passed this law? Well, I think it uh, just escaped the attention of a lot of people. Well, that's really dumb. Uh, well, uh, I mean, come on, people. Uh, <laughs> you know what Napoleon said: stupidity in politics is not a handicap. Clearly, I mean, what did they? I don't know. We'll get into it. Okay. Anyway, uh, it's just something about John Thomas Scopes. John Thomas Scopes was born in 1900. He would die in 1970. He was uh, first educated at the University of Illinois, eventually graduated from where your father graduated from, the University of Kentucky. Oh, he was And a uh, he was basically a math and physics teacher. He wasn't a biology teacher. But what happened was um, it came to a point where he was asked to substitute for the biology teacher on occasion. And into all of this mix, once the Butler Act was passed, came the ACLU and others who wanted to challenge the law because they felt it was unconstitutional on many grounds. Freedom of expression, freedom of religion, it was too vague. There were a lot of reasons why uh, many wanted to challenge it. And John Thomas Scopes, who was also the football coach and uh, coached other athletics. Wow, he did a lot. He did a lot, yeah. And uh, he was asked if he would uh, go along with all of this and, you know, kind of be the guinea pig. Uh, go along with uh, teaching evolution uh, so that the, the law could be challenged. And he agreed to it. Oh, so somebody contacted him and said... Well, there was, a, there was a man named Rapoyer who was a businessman in Dayton, Tennessee. And uh, Dayton had fallen on some hard times. This guy was in the coal and oil. And he thought that the notoriety that this trial would bring to Dayton would help it financially. So there was actually a financial incentive Isn't to have always. this <laughs> follow the money, huh? Um, so the ACLU got involved. Uh, this so they said, hey, will you teach what's in the textbook? R right. And well, it's interesting, too. Scopes was never absolutely certain if he had actually taught the chapter on evolution. He thought he might have, but he wasn't sure. But he allowed himself to be used as the individual to be prosecuted. And now I'm just curious, why did they choose him, especially since he wasn't the regular biology teacher? I'm not sure all of the reasons. They asked him, uh, a number of, uh, like Rappelier and others asked him if he would uh, would agree to this, and he did. And he I don't did. know all of his reasoning, but he agreed to do this, and then he was prosecuted. And this became a national event. Uh, you had reporters. Like once he was right, and uh, brought you up on charges. Yeah, you had the reporters from all over, uh, including Mankin from Baltimore, and you had two very famous people, one for the prosecution and one for the defense. You had other lawyers on both sides. There was an ACLU lawyer defending Scopes. There was the uh, Attorney General of Tennessee, Thomas Stewart, prosecuting Scopes. He would eventually become a U.S. Senator. But the two bigwigs in this trial with respect to attorneys 
was William Jennings Bryan for the prosecution and Clarence Darrow for the defense. Now, both Bryan and Darrow had national reputations. Everybody knew who these two guys were. Uh, Bryan had uh, run three times for the presidency on the Democratic ticket. Three times. 1896, 1900, and 1908, and lost all three times. Now, see, that would tell you something right there. Well, uh, there's a part of me that likes Brian. Uh, there's a part of me, he was a real populist. Um, a lot of individuals later on admired Brian for standing up for the common folk, uh, Harry Truman did, and others. Brian was also a Secretary of State in Wilson's cabinet from 1913 to 1915. He had been a congressman from Nebraska, even though he had been born in Illinois. He graduated from Northwestern University Law School. I think Brian was a very intelligent man, a very decent man. Uh, I think. So he, why do you think he decided to sign on to this for this? Because celebrity? he was a devout Christian who felt that teaching evolution as a fact was simply wrong, and he thought that the Butler Act uh, had some merit. Although, to Brian's credit, he was a little more expansive than than you would think he would have been. He didn't mind teaching evolution as a theory, as an alternative to creationism. Uh, it's not as though he wanted to completely forbid it as the Butler Act did. But okay. nonetheless, he was on the side of the prosecution and a very, very famous man by 1925. I guess everybody in the country would have known who Oh, everybody was. would have known who William Jennings Bryan was. And everybody would have known who Clarence Darrow was for the defense. Clarence Darrow was one of the great attorneys in the late 19th, early 20th century. He was born in 1857, three years before Bryan was. And um, unlike Brian, he didn't graduate from a, a law school. He briefly attended Allegheny College and University of Michigan. But like a lot of lawyers, like Abraham Lincoln, he read law, took the bar exam in Ohio, passed it. And he became a very, very famous uh, defense attorney, like in the Leonard and Loeb case from the year before, when those two young men, just for the thrill of it, killed another person. Oh. Alfred Hitchcock's rope, made in 1948, is thinly veiled uh, assessment of the Leonard and Loeb event of 1924. That's so close to Lerner and Loeb, the uh, composers who wrote Right, well, it's, not, My it's, Fair Leopold, Lady. it's Leopold and Loeb. Oh, Leopold and yeah, Loeb. What did I say? Uh, I don't think you said that. Okay, I'm sorry, it's Leopold and Loeb. Okay. And uh, so Darrow, and he had taken up many other controversial cases. So Clarence Darrow was probably the best known defense attorney. And he in, got them off? Uh, no, what happened with the Leopold and Loeb is they were found guilty. He got them off with respect to the death penalty. They got uh, life plus 99 years. That doesn't even make sense. Well, that's just the way the sentence went. But he, he made sure they didn't have the death penalty. Uh, Loeb was killed in prison in the 1930s. Leopold was eventually released in the 1950s. He went to Puerto Rico, uh, did a lot of good work. He was very contrite for what he did. But um, I, I don't want to get into that very much right okay. now. Suffice it, it, that's fascinating, too, i got to say. Well, it is. But suffice it to say that Clarence Darrow was probably the most famous defense attorney in America at the time. So you would definitely want him on your side. Oh, yes. Uh, Clarence Darrow was brilliant. I would have thought he'd be very expensive. Uh, I think he took this completely gratis that I know of. Wow. Yeah. I don't think uh, there was any. I think he did this for a principal. Interesting. And, uh, of course, Dayton, Tennessee, became the center of everything in the summer of 1925. The trial would actually last from July 10th to July 21st. 
it was brutally hot. And of course, they didn't have air conditioning back then. Oh, no. And it was in the courtroom there in Dayton, which is, I think, a National Historic Landmark today because of that. Oh, the courtroom. Yes. And a judge, John Ralston, presided. He was the presiding judge at the trial. He did think about moving it outside to a gigantic tent or so on because there were so many people that came to the trial, but it did remain. It would have been a lot cooler, probably. Oh, my gosh. It was brutally hot. I think at one point it was 97 degrees or something like that. In the courtroom. In the courtroom, yeah. It was How can you even think brutally that hot. kind of heat? And uh, Brian was not in the best of health. As many people might know, five days after the trial ended, Brian died in his sleep. Wow, the stress uh, so, of this probably had something to yeah, do with I, that. Yeah, it could have, right. Uh, he was already already had a heart condition. And uh, interesting, Brian's wife, Mary Baird Brian, was herself an attorney. It was unusual for a woman to be an attorney. That's very then. impressive. And uh, they, they had remained married for many, many years. So you have a number of attorneys on each side in this trial, but Daryl and Brian are the two stars. Uh Uh, By the way, one of the attorneys for the prosecution, in addition to Thomas Stewart, the chief prosecutor, was an attorney named Sue Hicks. Sue Hicks was a guy. What? Yes. This may be the individual that Johnny Cash uh, had in mind when he wrote A Boy Boy Named named Sue. Sue. So there really was a Sue Hicks. There really was a boy named Sue. There really was a boy named Sue. And uh, he tried over 800 cases. He was named Sue because his uh, mother was lost in uh, childbirth. And his father, who loved his mother, her name was Sue. So he called his son Sue. That's terrible. And uh, he didn't seem to mind it. He didn't seem to mind it. He went, uh, but that's a little footnote here to this Coke's That's a fascinating trial. footnote, actually. And anytime you can bring Johnny Cash into the conversation, that's mm-hmm. okay with me. Now, it's interesting that Darrow wanted to have this revolve around freedom of expression and so on. Judge Ralston kind of nixed that a bit. Uh, Darrow wanted to call expert witnesses. Ralston, the judge, didn't allow that except for one zoologist from Johns Hopkins. Two of the boys that Scopes taught did testify. One was 14, the other 17. Oh, they must have been terrified. I know. I think they enjoyed it, actually. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And they said they enjoyed listening to uh, Mr. Scopes. But once again, Scopes wasn't absolutely certain that he had taught evolution. That's uh, what's so fascinating, yeah. that they could prosecute him and right. not have definitive but he agreed evidence. But he agreed to be prosecuted because he felt that the Butler Act was unconstitutional. Um, so he, he, he was looking at the, the big picture. He was looking at the big picture, etc. And um, there were a couple other witnesses for the prosecution, uh, the superintendent, White, etc., But by the seventh day of the trial, Clarence Darrow decided to call William Jennings Bryan as a witness to grill him on the Bible. The prosecutor. The prosecutor. I mean, I uh, I think this is very rare for the the defense attorney to call a prosecuting attorney as a witness. Um, They must have been surprised. Did Bryant know that was coming? uh, Yeah, he agreed to it. And and so Darrow started to question Bryan on the literal aspects of the Bible and how in many ways they were absurd and couldn't make sense. Uh, Like, for instance, you have Adam and Eve who have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. And then in the Bible, Cain goes off and marries a woman. And Daryl said, well, where did the woman come from? Okay. And, And Brian's answer was, I'll let the agnostics look for her. That's not much of an answer. <laughs> um, 
I just, in the interest of full disclosure to our listeners, uh, I started as an anthropology major and switched to history. I've kept an interest in physical anthropology all my life. I certainly accept uh, the overall Darwinian concepts. I mean, we have over thousands and thousands of Neanderthal skeletons alone. We have over six species of Australopithecines. We can date from five to one million years ago. We have even earlier examples of hominids like uh, Aurorin tungadensis and Sahelanthropus chidensis. If you're going to deny evolution, how do you deal with all of this evidence? And I might add, if you believe in God, I don't see that there's any conflict here. If this is the way God did it, it just adds to the majesty of this higher power. But you have to admit, it does kind of contradict Genesis. Well, if you take Genesis oftentimes metaphorically or symbolically, I don't think it does. I mean... But if he created man in the image of himself... Well... God sure is funny looking. Uh... <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor of the Roman Catholic Church to this day, as far back as the 13th century, warned against dealing with the Bible as a scientific treatise. So you get into a lot of trouble. I mean, if you actually calculate all the years in the Bible, then the world's only something like 6,000 years old, which, geologically speaking, uh, can simply not be supported. But when Brian was called by Darrow for examination, Brian assumed that the following day he could, he could question Darrow. But by that time, Judge Ralston felt that all the testimony on this matter was irrelevant, and so Brian was never able to question Darrow on the stand. Well, that doesn't seem fair. And uh, Ralston just dismissed all of the inquiries that Darrow threw to Brian. Uh, that's as like not, a whole day of not relevant. the well, trial. That's what the judge did. And he just said, oh, just forget about yesterday. Pretty much. But the judge can do that. Judges are very, very powerful in the courtroom. They can, I mean, uh, was that just a whim? I, that just... He felt that Judge Ralston felt that it was not germane to whether the Butler Act was uh, violated or not. And I guess you could... I guess you could argue okay. that very narrow. But then he point. should have nipped it in the bud. Well, he didn't. Well, maybe he was fascinated by the and whole thing too. Maybe he was, but uh, Daryl and Brian actually kind of, sort of liked one another. They knew one another, and they disagreed on many things. Uh, Daryl was pretty much a, a total skeptic. Brian was very much a devout Christian, and uh, Scopes. Uh, in the movie Inherit the Wind, Scopes is arrested, he's put in jail and all of that. But on very friendly terms. Well, remember there's uh, that ugly scene where the uh, window of the jail is broken? Oh, where the, vill right. the well, he villagers... Right. He was never put in jail. He was never arrested in, in the classroom or anything like that. That was all embellishment by the movie. Of course, Which is based on a Broadway play. Right. And they didn't use the, the, the same names. They, they changed the names. But it's a great film. It's a great film, but I must say I think it portrays Brian a little too negatively. And he didn't uh, collapse in the courtroom after reading some uh, biblical uh, message that he wrote. He actually died in his sleep five days later after the trial ended on July 21st. Well, that's that's Hollywood. They like to abridge things. Well, I know, but when you when you deal with them, it's always been my conviction that if you're going to deal with an historical topic, you have to be as uh, ruthlessly objective and accurate as possible. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. I don't mind a little. I don't mind a fictional element put in here and there. But like a love interest, or yeah, something like that. Um, okay. But so 
The trial goes on for 10 11 days. days. 11 days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, then the jury... How long did they deliberate? <laughs> something like nine or ten minutes. That's it? That's it. And they found Scopes guilty. He, he was guilty. I mean, based on what the law said. Absolutely. That was the very narrow basis that the chief prosecutor went on. That, look, the Butler Act was violated. Okay. Scopes is guilty. And so he was found guilty. And he the, must have been a little nervous at this point. I think he might have been a little nervous. I think Scopes was like, a... what did I get myself into? I think in his later life, it, it was kind of annoying to him because he kept it kept being brought up about him when he was just 25 years old in this trial. Right. He went on to uh, graduate school at the University of Chicago in geology. He ended up in Texas and Louisiana as an oil consultant. Uh, he led a successful life after all of this. Well, we have to get back to the court. Well, he was found guilty, and the judge fined him $100. That's it. No prison time. No, no prison time. Fined him $100. Now, this was appealed to the Tennessee State Supreme Court. By whom? By uh, Darrow and, and his defense attorneys. Okay. And it went the whole way up to the Tennessee Supreme Court. And the Tennessee State Supreme Court very interestingly said, well, the judge didn't have the right under Tennessee law to fine a person more than $50. And he fined Scopes $100. So they negated the verdict on that procedural basis and didn't deal with the constitutionality of the Butler Act. Talk about passing the buck. Well, courts oftentimes pass the buck and the courts oftentimes rule in a very narrow way. But then uh, does it get kicked back down to a No, well, they, that what happened is the Tennessee State Supreme Court then dismissed the case completely, what they call nole prosequi. We do not wish to follow up on this. And the reason why was by that time, Scopes was out of Tennessee. He was in Illinois studying at graduate school. They didn't feel that there was any reason to retry this case. But then they still have the problem of this ridiculous law on the books. Well, the Butler Act remained on the books until 1967. Even after this? Yes. Right. That's until amazing. 1967. And But it's interesting, though, in the years after the Scopes trial, a lot of textbooks were re rewritten. Like, for instance, even the civic biology textbook that Scopes had used that was the subject of all of this. Right. Uh, it was rewritten by George William Hunter the next year, and he changed the term evolution of man to the development of man. It's so, all in the language, isn't so it? So what happened was, as you move into the late 20s, into the 1930s, evolution is still taught, but sometimes it goes under a different name. A rose by any other name. Right. And uh, by the 1960s, it was quite clear that... Uh, we pretty much settled, although I've, I've got to just tell our listeners, I started teaching at the high school level in the 1970s, and I always started my Western Civilization course with uh, prehistory, the origin of man and all that, evolution, etc. I tried to give them a little taste of, uh, of how old we are and how there were earlier species of the genus Homo, like Homo erectus, Homo habilis. Well, uh, on more than one occasion, I had a student of mine tell me that his or her minister said that I was teaching them satanic stuff. Wow. Yeah. Did so you ever my, have my, come my, after you? my approach to this always was look, I, I'm not going to force any belief on you. If you want to believe in creationism, uh, you're perfectly within your rights to do so. I don't accept that myself, but. Uh, these are that, the facts. These, but these, this is your right. 
and it won't affect your grade. Uh, you won't offend me or anything like that. So that was my approach. Um, but I have encountered that still, even when I was teaching at the college level, I encountered some college students that were skeptical about the Darwinian evolutionary account. And there is a negative aspect to Darwinism known as social Darwinism, uh, survival of the fittest and all this. And to William Jennings Bryan's credit, he understood this. He understood that Darwinian evolution had an aspect to it which would involve eugenics, which would involve uh, trying to eliminate the lesser element of the human population because they were inferior. So there is an underside to Darwinism that can surface. But wouldn't it just be a natural process? Not necessarily. Eugenics was the idea that you could actually breed superior human beings and you could uh, widow away the lesser element of mankind. And you can see how that would get very dangerous very quickly. Well, I feel like we're still dipping our toe in that water. Yeah, you got to be very careful there because it detracts from the dignity and worth of the individual. Like, for instance, someone with Down syndrome or many others. Uh, Which I have very personal experience with. And everyone, right. That's right. Your My aunt. aunt. Your aunt mm-hmm. had Down syndrome. And I think everyone's entitled to a, a certain amount of dignity and an extension of worth just as an individual. And um, so there is a social Darwinian aspect that goes against that, that Brian, to his credit, understood. Uh, I don't think Brian was the one-dimensional man that Inherit the Wind kind of portrays him as. Yeah, they sort of make him out to be a, a religious a caricature zealot of himself. almost. And I, I think that, I understand, I'm ultimately on Darrow's side. <laughs> of course you are. But I, I'm trying to be as objective <clears throat> as I can in all of this. And uh, after all this, Scopes just wanted nothing to do with this. I mean, he just... How long was the whole process, like once it went to the Supreme Court, once it... I, if I'm not mistaken, the Tennessee State Supreme Court uh, finally dismissed this in early 1926. So it took months, not years, it took okay, months. Okay, good. It was sometime around then. I mean, the trial was July of 25. I guess he continued teaching during this time? He left shortly thereafter. He went to graduate school. By, by September of 25, he was in graduate school at the University of Chicago in geology. Oh. Uh, so, and that's part of the reason why the Tennessee Supreme Court dismissed it because it was no longer germane because Scopes wasn't even in the state. Well, nowadays that doesn't matter if you're in the state or not. They well, that you. was part of the reason why the, the Supreme Court said, "Look, this is this is kind of." Moot. They said, "Move on with your lives, right, people." Right. So they they didn't declare the Butler Act unconstitutional, though. They they actually dismissed could all they, this. Could the they proceeding. have done that if they wanted to? Sure. Yeah, they could have. Yeah, but they didn't. They didn't touch it. And, uh, and don't forget, we're, no, I, I, no, I think that's a little too harsh. I mean, don't forget, there's a lot of individuals who had a very difficult time accepting Darwinian evolutionary concepts. But well, and especially in that part of the country at that time. Yeah, but I don't want to. I don't want to caricaturize the South either. That that's done way too often. Some of the even to this day. Some of the some of the shrewdest people I've ever known come from the South. And they, that accent they use, they kind of suck you in, and then they know they have you. <laughs> I know that from uh, your relatives in West Virginia. <laughs> they almost enjoy being underestimated. I would counsel against underestimating Southerners. That's um, probably good advice. Yeah, I'm against that. In any case, uh, the Scopes Monkey Trial was this very famous trial where evolution was put on trial, and up until this time, was it the most famous trial, you would say? 
I don't know if it was the most famous. The uh, previous year, the Leopold and Loeb trial was oh, very was famous, big. and there were other very famous trials, but it was it was nationally followed. So, and it was followed uh, uh, overseas too. I mean, there were uh, it was followed in in Britain and elsewhere. Oh, because I guess it affects the whole world. Yeah, really, it was it was a international, not just a national event. Wow, so yeah. I guess it probably did help the town. I'm not so sure how much it helped the coal and oil industry down in Dayton. That I, I didn't uh, read about. Might have. That's why Rappelier, wanted, it was one of the individuals that wanted this to go to trial because he wanted Dayton put on the map for business purposes. So that's the Scopes Monkey Trial. That's it, fascinating. And then how, how much later did Darrow live? Darrow died in 1938. Okay. Okay. He also, was he was born in 1857. He died in 38. So he lived about 13 years longer than Brian. Once again, Brian died just five days after the trial ended. Did he? I wonder if he died at home or if he. He died, died at home in his sleep. Uh, he was in he was in Dayton uh, after the trial. In the immediate di- days after the trial, he gave a number of speeches and very hot weather, and that might have also contributed to oh, his yeah. to his death. Especially if you have a heart condition. And- yeah. Right. He was only 65, I think, when he died. That's so young. Yeah. And uh, Darrow lived into his early 80s. Wow. Good for him. Right. Did he do any more oh, yeah. high-profile <laughs> cases? Clarence Darrow never gave up. He had he had other very famous cases. I might just add, he, was, he thought that pessimism, not optimism, was the best way to approach life. Because if you approach life as a pessimist, then everything's a bonus. Which is kind of your approach, I might uh, well, add. Well, it's what I think it's Jonathan Swift who said, uh, "If you expect absolutely nothing from life, you can never be disappointed." There I is... personally don't <laughs> believe in that approach to life, but that—that's that's um, the difference between us. Well, optimists set themselves up for disappointment again and again. But I think Darrow wrote an entire essay on uh, on the virtue of pessimism. I'd be curious to read that, actually. Right. I think I have it someplace in my library. Well, we'll have to go have, looking. Yeah, well, I have so <laughs> I have so many books I haven't looked at for so long. You have thousands of books in your library. I have library. thousands of books. Easily. Yes. I mean, our right. whole home is basically we're, a library. Yeah. Between between books and maps, we're we're a learning institution here. Right. There you go. And and my wife loves every book. <laughs> and dusting every book. Uh, uh, yes. Right. Well, I plead guilty. Good. I feel like Clarence Darrow myself. (laughs) Well, this has been fascinating because it's one of those things, again, like you've heard of it, but you have no idea what it means. Right. Yeah, but evolution continued to be taught, uh, sometimes under a different name, because it was very clear that the evidence was But even now, I mean... Even when I grew up, I wasn't taught evolution. I went to a Christian school. I was never taught yeah, evolution. I know. Well, that's why a few uh, students I taught told me that their minister said I was teaching them something satanic. Well, you're lucky you didn't have parents after you. Uh, well, maybe I was, but uh, I don't know. But that was that was the late 1970s. And I even had some college students in the 90s that uh, were hesitant or weren't sure, et cetera. I don't, I don't think there's any conflict between believing in a higher power and evolution. Uh, I think that, that you can reconcile the two. That is my own conviction. That sounds fair. Yeah, I think so. But uh, I understand that many don't want to do that. And um, well, That's their prerogative. That's their right. They have a right. You have a right to be a creationist. I don't know that you have a right to teach creationism in a science class. 
But I think that in a religious class or uh, perhaps a, a class of philosophy or an ethics class, it could be presented as a one a theory. I, I think it's a fallacious theory myself, but uh, hey, I could be wrong. Exactly. <laughs> and I'll be the first person to tell you when you yes, are. Yes, you will be, folks. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> you, can, you can rest assured about that. <laughs> Wow. Well, thank you for sharing all this information because I learned something. Right. Like I always do. And uh, I, I would recommend the movie Inherit the Wind made in 1960, but watch it with a few grains of salt. Yeah. It's amazing performances, though. They're amazing performances. Frederick March plays William Jennings I Bryan. Love and uh, Spencer Tracy plays Clarence Darrow. He's brilliant in this film. And he is. They're both. And uh, Henry Morgan plays the judge. Oh, and what's uh, here's a little interesting musical fact. Okay. Leslie Uggams, who is a huge Broadway performer, right, and also does TV. This was her first big thing. She recorded the soundtrack for this when she was 17 years old. Yeah, I was going to say she was would have been awfully young. Yeah, she was 17 years old. She uh, she grew up in Harlem. She grew up singing. Mm-hmm. Somebody discovered her and. She sang the and it's an acapella version of old time religion. Wow! And it's actually quite stunning. Oh, give me I my think. old time. Yeah, religion. she's seventeen. Yeah. Wow! It's amazing. Yeah. So also, if you see the film, check out Leslie Uggams. Yeah. Impressive. No, I think the film was worthwhile, but uh, I think it is slanted against Brian. It is. Yeah. I won't deny that. Right. But it's fascinating. Great right. film. And I think, you know, in any historical matter, you have to be as ruthlessly objective as you can be. But it doesn't mean you can't take sides. Uh, for instance, I'm glad I, I'm with FDR and Winston Churchill against Hitler and Mussolini. <laughs> that's, that's probably a good idea. Uh, yeah, right. I and mean, it comes a point where you have to develop deep convictions and say, okay, this is where I stand. Kind of like uh, what Luther did at the Diet of Worms in 1521. Here I stand. I can do no other. They're... That's exactly what I was thinking. Is that right? Mm-hmm. You were thinking of Luther at yeah, Worms. Yeah, I okay. absolutely was. All right. Hey, that's folks. an episode right there. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on Martin Luther. I mean, he he was a mover and shaker. Yeah, he definitely shook things up. Well, ma'am, do you want to tell our listeners what we're doing next? Oh, so I guess we're done. Okay, moving right along. Uh, Oh, our next episode is actually... (laughs) We had planned this a while ago, and then we both got COVID, which is kind of related to (laughs) the Black Death. Yes, we're going to deal with the Black Death, which uh, first breaks out in the middle of the 14th century. We'll make reappearances over the centuries. We'll cover it in detail. I was going to say, don't give too much away. I won't give too much away. Uh Uh-uh. But it was uh, the ultimate killer. The ultimate killer. Yeah, and we'll go into detail about that in our uh, next podcast. In episode 39. 39. Ooh, we're getting up there. Yes, we are. Excellent. Yes. Okay, so until next time, everyone, please stay healthy as much as you possibly can and stay happy. Yes. And we'll see you hopefully in two weeks. Yes, and hopefully we'll be completely COVID-free by that time. Oof, at least over all these symptoms. Yes. Which is no fun. No fun. But I'm eternally an optimist, so we're going to be amazing by the next time oh, we do yes, this. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. I forgot. You're the optimist. Yes. Yes, of course. Okay. So I'm sticking to my guns on this one. Okie dokie. <laughs> Okie dokie. <laughs> all right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Goodbye. Well, friends. Here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. 
We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today. And again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, if you want to know what the future holds, study the past. <laughs>